Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right, we have with us today R.J. Snell. He is contributing editor of Public Discourse and director of academic programs at the Witherspoon Institute. Previously, he was for many years professor of philosophy and director of the philosophy program at Eastern University in the Templeton Honors College. He's the author of many books, including Authentic Cosmopolitanism, that's from 2013, and Asadia and Its Discontents from 2015. Today's topic is two articles in public discourse on the current crisis. They were done uh, March 23rd was the first one, and it's entitled the coronavirus has unveiled a deeper political disease. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Snell. Uh, Mark, very good to be with you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Well, these, these were powerful essays. We'll go through each one, and what I want to do is pull out some of the main themes here and let you expound upon them. Uh, you begin in the first one with a quotation from Pierre de Manon from 2015. It begins by uh, referring to the nature of the state. And he said, states are large, overburdened beings, slow moving and always postponing the moment to reflect and decide. Inertia is their rule. Only one thing seems really able to educate nations and that is political experience. When that experience is sufficiently brutal, penetrating and overwhelming. First big question for you, RJ. Do you think that we are in a condition of that uh, right now with the pandemic of a political experience that is brutal, penetrating, and overwhelming? Can, can, can we make a judgment yet? Or, or where, where would you stand on that? Yeah, thanks for that. So later on in the essay, I remark that I think much commentary is premature and, and hyperbolic. So I don't know whether we're in an actual brutal, penetrating and overwhelming moment uh, in reality, but I know that it is being experienced that way by many. Right. Uh, the long term effects of this, I, I won't prognosticate. Uh, and the commentary which talks about how everything has changed and nothing will be the same. I, I don't know whether that's that's right or not. The quote continues, though, and this is what I'm most interested in from Manent's argument. He says that when you have some moments such as this, an extrinsic accident, so it's not internal to the nature of the state to have a pandemic, but when you have an extrinsic accident, such as war or revolution or a pandemic, it causes members of a nation to recognize themselves. Mm. Uh, and that really was what I was interested in in the quote of many people are operating in fear and hope and some exasperation. 
and beginning to have the occasion to think about themselves as citizens and, and what the purpose and function of the state is, how they relate to each other and so on. Uh, so I'll plead agnostic about the larger case uh, and yeah. think that nonetheless, we're, we're still in a moment of that kind of self-recognition. Do, do you find that the citizens, the people who are reflecting upon themselves as citizens, are they in a way doing this at least more quickly than the officials who work in the state? I mean, if the state operates on inertia, then the state is, is, it, is the state going to be resistant to the idea that this is slow to slow to accept the fact that we are in an extreme situation and we've got to reflect we've got to reflect on what we're about in some ways it's not if Menent is right it's it's not the nature of the state to be very good at that kind of self-reflection uh, it may be good at bureaucratic management or or not <laughs> Uh, but it certainly is capable of acting in a managerial capacity. But states are not very good at reflecting about the very nature of the state or the very nature of being a citizen in that state. Uh, so I don't know if we'll see many lessons given to us from from the various elected officials and, and the managers and, and so on. Uh, I think that's up to us. In the, Later in the essay, I quote a Wall Street Journal essay, um, which talks about the trust that the essayist has in citizens attaining and elected officials particularly as opposed to the managers of the state yeah recognizing yeah. when and where, where the social fulcrum has been reached where where too much is too much in terms of the management where too far is too far mm -hmm. but i think that's going to be the domain of of people like us right ordinary ordinary plain citizens uh, to make those kinds of judgments it's just not in the nature of the state to be very um, philosophical about its own nature and, and even people who go into the state, who work for the state, who are, you know, individually, as you say, given to reflection, learning or wisdom, states aren't. And so that it, even if they want to be, though those, especially the unelected officials, if they want to be reflective, it's hard for them to do so within the structure, the, the norms, the habits, the workplaces of the state. Is that correct? Well, and maybe that's for the, for the best at times too. I'm not sure that when I, <laughs> I, I want somebody, you know, this or that department engaging in armchair philosophizing for a moment. I know when it, when it comes to the courts and the, the Supreme Court justices, we'd rather them interpret the law than to exercise uh, philosophy 101 or sociology 101. Um, but it's certainly, you know, one of the thinkers that many people are referring to just now, as I do in my, my own essay, in the second essay, is McIntyre, Alistair McIntyre, right. uh, the nature of management or the nature of the bureaucrat, where the bureaucrat is very good at dealing with, or we hope they're very good at least, at dealing with means to a preordained end. They're, they're told or ought to be told by the free citizens what the ends are, and the experts then get us to those ends, get us to those ends. But bureaucracies are not very good, and it's in some ways counter to their very formation, to ask what, the, what those ends ought to be, yeah. to reflect about the meaning of life, and to even create a hierarchy of ends. Which ends are most important to us here? Is safety the most important end? Is the economy the most important end? Religion, salvation of the soul? Bureaucracies don't do that. And maybe that's for the best in some ways. But a free yeah, people yeah. don't hand over that kind of reflection 
as if it need not occur or they need free people don't simply refuse to engage in those kinds of conversation. That's what it means to live in a Republican system is we direct our representatives to the ends we think fit. Well, this gets to really the sort of the human crux of your argument here when you say that we have a big problem in the United States, maybe in the West, is that people, quote, have long forgotten to view themselves as citizens. And you italicize citizens there. Just, just first of all, the, the, the genesis of this, uh, and I know it's a huge question, RJ, but why have people in 2020 forgotten themselves as citizens? What happened? The, the argument that I'm exploring from Manant, from, from his most recent book, or at least the most recent book that's been translated into English, which just came out from Notre Dame Press uh, just, just a few weeks ago. The argument that he makes, and I'm quite taken with it, it's similar to, to other reflections that others make, is that we have a problem in how we've trained ourselves, trained our young, and indeed shaped our common life together. We have a problem of how we've understood rights. So if we think of rights as attaching to members of a community and those members aren't denuded, to, to paraphrase him, if they are first and foremost fellows alongside others in thick relations, so I happen to be a son, but not in, in a generic way. I'm a son to, to Gordon. I'm a son to Bonnie. I also happen to be a father, father to these children, and I'm a husband to, to this woman. My rights, in a thick sense, are formed and shaped by those relations. I have, for instance, and something I feel quite strongly about, I have the right to educate my children because I have an obligation, a very thick obligation to my children. Manette argues that that kind of language of natural rights and the limits of natural law have been all but replaced entirely with the language of human rights which some people think is interchangeable. I think that the genealogy is quite different and the meaning is quite different. What he stresses is that human rights in the contemporary parlance aren't attached to people who are encumbered or view themselves as being encumbered by thick patterns of relationships, being a son, being a husband, being a father. They view it as being attached to being a unit of life, just that I'm a, a substance, a biological unit of life. Yeah. And so rights yeah. then are essentially stripped of all real content and they become free floating. And as he puts it, almost immune to rational reflection. Every sovereign little individual understood just as an individual can make whatever rights claims they, they deem fit and determine themselves around a kind of sovereignty of will. Well, how do we argue about that? And how does a citizen operate that way? That's to already view yourself as detached from the common. Right. Uh, a citizen. Well, for, first, a quick biographical note. Tell our listeners how many kids you have, RJ. I have five. I have five children, uh, 15 and under. Uh, the youngest <laughs> just had her fourth birthday yesterday, two days ago. Uh, that, that can create some thick relations. Uh, thicker than sometimes I would desire. I mean, I get the desire <laughs> to be unencumbered. Right? Right, right, Everybody right, my right. age with children sort of thinks, wasn't it great to be an unencumbered 20-year-old? Uh, but right. it's not the nature of the thing. And oddly, I have more rights now because I have more obligations now than I ever did at 20. Hmm. You know, you talk about the youth here, and that actually leads to the next turn in your essay, which we'll get to. But first, quickly, as a citizen, does a citizen presupposes that you have 
some thick relation. I mean, it's not a thin relation. It's a thick relation to the nation in which you are a citizen, correct? Right. So we don't absorb into the nation. It's not as if we lose our status as, as citizens or as agents. Yeah. But to be a citizen is not just to be someone who happens to reside or happens to have been born within a particular geography. Um, there's different ways to account for that. But there is some sense of the agency of the common, right? The agency of the common enterprise being something that I am caught up into and in part constituent of and in part responsible for. You know, one of the difficulties I have teaching students, they simply do not understand how a figure like Robert E. Lee could have loyalty to Virginia. They, they, they do not understand at all the thick relationship with the, the American state, not the federal government, but the state government, the state identity, the state locale was for, for, for many, many people much stronger than their relation to the United States uh, back, back, back in the old days. And I, I think we see part of that process is the way in which the state keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And one of the paradoxes you draw out is the more individuals lose their local thick relations, the more they become unencumbered, putatively free individuals, the bigger the state gets and the more they are willing to accept the management of, of the state. How do you explain this paradox? Yeah, well, language that I borrow from Pat Deneen, I, I don't know if he coined it or not, but I learned it from him anyway, uh, and I cite him in the, in the second essay, is this strange sense, which on the face of it seems like it should be a paradox, of a double pincer movement, a kind of a two-sided movement which wraps around, right. which takes away both agency and freedom. So the first side of the pincer is a kind of rabid individualism, which if you, if you stopped there, you would think that we would become more and more free, right? Individualists don't hand over their prerogative to the states, you would think, or to the, right. to the, to the government or to the, the experts. The model here, you know, Henry David Thoreau, yeah, right. He's exactly. going off to the woods. He, to live deliberately, right? to suck the marrow out of life. You, you, you're not yeah. imagining that you become a, a sort of ward of the state under that image. Whereas the second side of the pincer is a, an ever encroaching statism where we become more like subjects or wards of the state. But Deneen and others, and certainly I, I think this is the case and I'm presuming it here. What's in common in both of those pictures is a sense of the individual as being essentially a place of emptiness, just sovereignty, as opposed mm. to someone who is, as an individual, self-reliant, but self-directed, self-governed, but self-governed not only under the law, both civil and moral, but self-governed toward a sense of the common, where the citizen never relinquishes her agency. She is, first and foremost, an agent, self-directed, self-governed, self-reliant. But because an agent, thus able to be a citizen, to freely engage in the common. And what we have instead in both this sort of denuded, thin individualism, while well, at the same time the state grows and grows and grows, is a sense of the government or of the state being merely a bureaucratic purveyor of goods and services to us. It gives us things that we need, and we become consumers, and eventually not even consumers, but those who are cared for by the state. 
as opposed to real citizens. Uh, so it's on the face of it, it should seem like a contradiction, and it actually yeah. hangs together. No, I think I think you're 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 right on there with that. The sovereignty is a kind of is a kind of emptiness. That there's something there's something vacant there, and you draw you draw a very marked contrast between uh, today's uh, unencumbered, denuded individual with the old individualism of Emersonian self-reliance or Thomas Jefferson's yeoman farmer, who they were very jealous of their prerogatives, but they, they, they didn't seem like an empty, sort of an empty sovereign character just moving through life. Yeah, I grew up in a ranch out west in Western Canada, and in Everyone I knew was a, a thoroughgoing, self-reliant individualist. The idea of accepting uh, help out of real need was anathema. You, there was embarrassment for about such thing. Where yeah. at the same time, there was a relatively thick community of, of neighborliness and the offering of assistance. Um, people would help each other during harvest. Uh, I sort of, in some ways, lived in, lived in the 19th century. Uh, in the summer with the spring calves, Farmers would, ranchers would go from ranch to ranch on different weekends, you know, dozens of people to help each other with the work of, uh, of processing the calves, where people inside were making pies, and then one would sit to the common table, and then the next week you'd go to the next farm and do the same thing. So utterly self-reliant, almost Thoreau-like, mm. and yet a sense of, of course, no one is abandoned here. Everyone is part of a common enterprise, and, and everyone's living and dying together. And and as soon as there was you you were certain that if there was some kind of external threat, you know, be it weather or you know other other people, villains, those individualists would bond together instantly. Yeah, you would be embarrassed to ask for help, but you knew that you were obligated to provide it. And there's an interesting hmm. sort of tension there. I'm so free that I hesitate to ask for help. But I feel duty bound to offer it to people, knowing that they also are hesitant to 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 request it or to receive it. That's that's the uh, the tension of being a free agent in community. Yeah, and and the emptiness also somewhat applies to the state as well. I'm going to read a quote that you uh, borrow, um, in which you talk about. The nation is no more than, quote, a bureaucratic supplier of goods and services, which is always about to, but never actually does give its clients value for money, unquote. The, invocation, the invitation to, quote, lay down one's life on its behalf is like being asked to die for the telephone company. So the state is really just a provider of services. And that's, that's not going to build any kind of thick relation. No, no one's going to sacrifice, as you put it, let's be honest, no one is going to sacrifice for one cell phone provider. But that's, that's what the state is in, in this situation here. A, a very inefficient uh, model or analog <laughs> to, to, to the cell phone provider, because they at least uh, deliver in due time, whereas the state is, is very slow. You know, in both <laughs> essays, I make reference to Pericles. In part, I've been reading Kagan's yeah. history of the Peloponnesian War, so that's in my mind. But my kids are all reading Plutarch right now, uh, and they've, they've been reading about Demosthenes and Pericles. So I reread Pericles' famous funeral oration, yeah. and the sense that he has there, unquestioned, that the citizens of Athens 
know that there is the common good of Athens because they and the polis are closely related and the good of Athens is their good and their good is in some way related to the good of Athens. That seems, um, a str- that seems to be from a, an almost unimaginable foreign place for us. Now, I know that there are all sorts of patriots still. I, I meet them. I'm certainly not making a claim that there's no one who understands themselves as citizen or patriot. But when I think about the way that increasingly we're formed by our schools and by our relative lack of civil association, the arc of the story here in our own societies is not that of the thick polis, not that of thickly encumbered citizens who, who recognize duties to, this, to themselves by acknowledging their duty to, to the common project. That's just not the arc of the story for us right now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the the whole notion of the global citizen. I mean, what a what a what a fake! What, what an empty concept this is. It. There's no mystic chords of memory. I haven't. <laughs> I, I find myself un, uh, unable to feel any affection the way that an Athenian citizen must have felt affection for Athens, for you know a universal cosmopolitan government or something. Right, right. And you you link this to some of the phenomena of bowling alone. The, the coming apart phenomenon. And you pick a, a recent example. You go to those Florida beaches and, and spring break uh, to talk about the way the young seem to be ignoring the, the crisis and the requisite turn toward reflection that the crisis like this, or at least that was presented, the way it was presented to us. And that this part this is part of the breakdown because there's nothing to pass. Thick relations can be passed along to the young. These, there are no, there are no relations to pass along to the young in the unencumbered individualist human rights society. So why would the 20 year old feel I, I owe a duty to, to the elderly here to be very careful in what I do. I may want to do something, but that's not good enough. Well, we, we, we didn't see that with a lot of the, you know, you know, the, the news stories at spring break and the dancing and all the, everyone crowding the beaches. I mean, so certainly, you know, when I wrote the article, those were the news stories floating around. So I wanted to appeal yeah. to them. But the very next paragraph... Uh, I then say, well, look, it's not really just the young. And I, yeah. I cite some stories of young people writing their boomer parents and essentially saying, grow up already. Can't you be a serious person? Uh, right. And my conclusion is this isn't really about whether one is old or whether one is young. I, I don't see this as a, a generational shaking of the finger at the boomers or at the millennials or something, but more of a problem that we all face, which is we have increasingly been shaped to not view ourselves as citizens, which is what I was stressing in the first essay, or as real agents who don't hand over our freedoms in the second essay. If we're to be real citizen agents, we have to know simultaneously that we are agents and self-directed and thus can freely understand and recognize our duties to the common. You have a nice you have a nice phrase near the end of this first essay uh, when, you know, in the condition we're in now, individuals are unlikely to view themselves as citizens for each is an anarchic kingdom unto himself. And I think one of the keywords, why anarchic? Why, why do you call it an anarchy and not sort of 
the, the tyranny of the individual will. Well, I think I also say maybe in that same paragraph that they're little tyrants. I mean, so <laughs> it, right. individuals who understand themselves as being essentially empty and then defining themselves based on their will, they're anarchic in the sense, in the old sense of the term. There's not an arche. There's a privation of the arche, the principle. So one of the things that Manent does in this book uh, so well, the natural law book so well, is stress that to be a real agent requires operating under law. Now, that doesn't just mean civil law. That, too, the deeper question here is natural law. That if I'm going to be not just an anarchic tyrant defined by whatever the whims of my sovereignty are, now this and now that, right, playing with my agency and thus defining myself absent a principle, I have to be under law and I act freely because there is a law governing all my actions. In some way, that's just the law of intelligence. I can't have an intelligible action unless my action is governed by reason. And that's already to be under natural law in some way. Mm -hmm. no, no real freedom without, without the intelligible moral law. This leads into the second essay. It's called Pandemics and the Agency of Citizens. It came out a few days ago at Public Discourse. And you open with a paragraph recapitulating the argument that we've just been going over for, for the last uh, 20 minutes. And you then say, okay, We've been told, especially by the elites, to idealize the autonomous self. And here, here's, here's what you say. People formed to believe and cherish such a fiction will struggle to view themselves as members who participate and contribute to the common good, or so I suggested in the previous essay. And there is a rich irony in our cultured elites haughtily exhorting us to public-mindedness after they have relentlessly undermined the basis of civility and citizenship. Now, we, we see a lot of populist resentment against the elites. Is, is, is this irony? Is this, you know, saying you guys are telling us this now? Is, is that part of the sort of the, the, the long, longer, you know, the, the many months long or years long populist uprising against, against the elites that we've seen? Well, it's at least irony. It might be more than that, but it's at least uh, irony. Certainly there is a, a sense, and maybe unfair, of pointing at the elites, at the elites, at the elites. Yeah. I, I do know this, because everyone's responsible in some ways. But I do know this. As someone who's been involved with education and, and higher education for, for a while now, I do know that... And these are the elites that I'm most familiar with, right? The, not the elites of government or Wall Street, but the elites of education, the headmasters and the university presidents and so on. The trajectory has been for a long time now to deconstruct and to unmask and to expose the clay feet and to f foster an attitude of disassociation, to foster an attitude of suspicion to be critical, right? and it's, it's very strange to have worked for decades to tell us that we are essentially anarchic and free, and then under some conditions of an extrinsic accident, stress here, fear, to demand public-mindedness as if there could be a 180 turn, or as if the public-mindedness that we'd be asked to comply with 
would not itself be a compliance as opposed to a free exercise or, or of agency. That's pretty rich. Uh, and I have some reservations uh, about the way that our educational institutions have trained people now for decades and then to suddenly expect that people would view themselves as being citizens after being viewed as, as rabid individualists. That seems unlikely to me. Yeah. Yeah. You quote McIntyre talking about the ruling elite. Uh, he says, it would also be in the interest of the ruling elite that no one raise any of the fundamental questions about the best life for human beings in the community, because any answer to these questions and indeed, any attempt to find answers could only undermine the, the legitimacy of their rule, which is based on the belief that there are no such answers. Do they, is this conscious with them? Or is it kind of more instinctive that they just don't want those kinds of questions coming out? You're interfering with the, you know, the, the, the gears here you're 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 throwing you're throwing a monkey wrench into the system now knock it off yeah mcintyre in, in after virtue where this argument is developed in in probably its most clear way or at least in the way that most readers would have access to it other than some of his more specialized work he, he makes this argument about social role and that one of the role in our society is which defines our society it's not just an accidental aspect but it in some ways allows you to understand the nature of the way we are is the manager and McIntyre notes there's a sort of disintegration in the manager's life. So from nine to five, the manager doesn't ask questions about the best possible life or the end of their actions or the end of their work. And then, of course, at five or six or seven, they go home and they become ordinary, plain persons again, concerned with all all sorts of, of ends and debates about the purpose of life. So I am not uninterested in casting aspersions about the, the character and decency of, of our rulers. But I do think that there is a, an issue with the social form of how they've been trained to view leadership. So think just as an example, the debate that some people or the question that some people are asking just now about what is the value or how many lives need to be saved here in order to tank the economy. And that kind of debate is, is viewed or even asking that question is viewed with some horror as if to ask about the economy or to ask about livelihood turns you into a, a murderous monster. But that's not even the more interesting question. Imagine a public official or a public intellectual asking the question, well, what's the role of suffering just now in, in, under a pandemic? Should suffering be um, understood as salvific or is, is this uh, an act of God punishing us for our ways? You know, the, to ask those sorts of questions in, in, in public would not get you a mark of respect of what a thoughtful, reflective person you are. But, you know, you thoughtless murderer. Because the best we can do when it comes to asking about ends just now is a kind of sentimental humanism about, about welfare and safety. And that yeah, is to yeah. be unasked. That is to be unchallenged. Um, and that means we're essentially sh moving through the debate without having a debate. Do they think that if we can apply solid, rational, scientific principles to our lives, well... We can eliminate all suffering. Is this the root faith that you say here that experts mistakenly believe that human affairs can be made scientific? 
I think that as our society loses its its first things, its first principles, its understanding that there's something that is not merely imminent, that there's more to life than the, the new newest phone which comes out in increased GDP, that there's a growing sense that suffering is not only accidental, we could, we could solve it. Um, Harari, Yuval Harari, in his book about transhumanism, says, look, death is now just a hardware glitch. It's not a metaphysical principle. It's not original sin. It's just a glitch of the hardware, and we can thus fix it. Well, if even death could be fixed, everything can be fixed if you apply the, the proper rationalist technique and scientific method. But if everything can be fixed, then it becomes unendurable to us that it's not fixed. It's blameworthy. I mean, if, if you can solve death and you choose not to solve death, you'd be a moral monster. Right. And so suffering becomes not something which is unpleasant or undesired, but morally impermissible. We are you, not to suffer. And people are embarrassed about their suffering. It's not as if they view it as intrinsic to human reality that there will be scarcity and, fame and, and famines and pestilences. They view it as impermissible. This should you, be taken you, care of. You have a great quote near the end, RJ, when you say, consequently, when suffering does occur, we are shocked because we have concluded that such things are no longer possible and therefore no longer permissible. Yeah, right, right there. And I, I, I don't understand how the, the suffering one finds, the death that is around us all the time, how people are shocked by this. Are they just trying to... Uh, they they want to live in a, in a in a bubble of security. Is that is that what the, what the fundamental desire here is? Christopher Dawson is a, a great essay. The title, which I'm escape, is escaping me at the moment, but it's essentially about the difference between the erotic understanding of life and the non-erotic. The erotic understanding of life knows that we're here fundamentally to transcend our imperfections and become perfect. In the Christian parlance, we would say to be holy as your father is in heaven is holy. That's the fundamental point of life. And there are many other good things about life, which are also points, work, family, knowledge, play, aesthetics. Those are all good, all points too. But the fundamental point is to transcend those imperfections, uh, or to put it in Thomistic language, we have a supernatural vocation. If you remove the supernatural vocation or an erotic sense of life, and the only point of life is to um, pad one's 401k and make sure that you have sufficient life insurance and health care. Um, there's something shocking, unexpected when the extrinsic accidents of poverty or a recession come in. But those of us who are formed in a theological story, like as I am, of Christianity, are not shocked when there's evil in the world, where there's suffering or natural desire, disasters in the world. So if you get on the the, the journals or the newspapers of the the prophets of imminence, every time that there's a shock in this in the world system, someone will say something like, this is unthinkable. Well, it's not unthinkable. It's not who, unthinkable. Who thought it was unthinkable? Who thought it was unthinkable that there would be a pandemic? Yeah. It's perfectly thinkable. Well, here's where we are. And I, I recommend to our listeners these two essays by R.J. Snell on the pandemic and what it is clarifying about citizenship, autonomy, and individualism. Thank you for joining us, RJ. So good to talk to you. Be well. 
And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.